Hello, all you wonderfully strange and unusual creatures. I'm Corey. And I'm Courtney. And this is Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, a true crime show that digs into the dark depths of sinister minds, their menacing crimes, and mistakes left behind, all while sipping on a sinister cocktail masterminded by Corey for each episode. We want to first start out by saying that our sinister cocktails featured for each episode is just to help us lighten the mood a bit on the dark and horrific crimes we cover. And in no way, shape, or form are we trying to make light of the horrific crimes. Please know our hearts go out to the victims, their families and friends, and law enforcement affected by each of the cases we cover. Corey, what sinister cocktail have you masterminded for today's episode ending our Irish March Madness? I'm calling this one a killer English leprechaun. Two ounces of vanilla vodka, one ounce of mint and green syrup, one large scoop of vanilla ice cream, and one scoop of ice. Combine all the ingredients into a blender and blend till smooth. Pour into a glass of your choice, top off with whipped cream and a cherry, and enjoy this magically delicious drink. And I really, really like this it's one. It's so good. It's like an it's adult so milkshake. It's so it delicious. Is. Once again, you have just mwah, nailed it. <laughs> so, all you strange and unusual creatures, pour yourself a cocktail and settle in for this sinister true crime. Two Brits and an Irish pact. Believe us, you're going to need it. Britain's John Shaw and Joffrey Evans would become known as Ireland's first serial killers. The sinister duo first met while serving time together in an English prison during the early 1970s. It is there that the two career criminals concocted their sinister sick plot to abduct, torture, rape, and murder one woman a week. Once released from the English prison, the deadly duo would leave the UK and travel around Ireland committing burglaries for several years. In the long hot summer of 1976, Shaw and Evans twisted sinister plot would begin and ending in the murder of 22-year-old Elizabeth Plunkett in County Wicklow, Ireland, and the murder of 24-year-old Mary Duffy in County Mayo, Ireland. Both young women were savagely beaten and brutally raped by both Shaw and Evans and eventually being killed with their lifeless bodies being discarded into the sea. At trial, the court would hear how Shaw had told police, I didn't want to do it. It was Evans. He made me do it. God help me. The devil made me do it. Keep him away from me. So, were these the horrific acts of two sinister minds, or was this the work of one sinister mind who forced another to be his accomplice? And this is totally sinister minds here, but these guys are so fun. They're such a fun case study to look at. What I really liked about the story, too, is so I really started to take this crime and start comparing it to Jack the Ripper stuff. And I would not be surprised if these guys didn't have like a link to Jack the Ripper through some kind of genetic link, because I'm telling you, some of the crap they did to these women reeks of Jack the Ripper. I didn't think about that until you just said that, but it really does, doesn't it? It made me pull out all my old Jack the Ripper books. As soon as I started reading on this one and researching it, I was like, I gotta pull out. Because by the way, Patricia Conroe wrote one of the best books on Jack the Ripper. I started pulling our book and I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, holy crap, this could really be a good link to him. Agreed. Way to go, Corey. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky leprechaun coming out in me. There you go. 31-year-old John Shaw and 32-year-old Joffrey Evans were both from Great Manchester area in England. Shaw had a criminal record starting at the age of 14, beginning his criminal activity with burglary. He had been married, but the marriage did not last. Shaw was illiterate and later would sign his police statements with an ex. Evans had been married with three children, but like Shaw, his marriage failed as well. Good grief. <laughs> That's a lot. Seriously. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, he couldn't even learn how to write his name. He just wrote an eggs. Come on, buddy. Well, that also tells me just... IQ level? Yes. His IQ level was somewhat very low, but probably of choice, not of means. I would agree with that. The two had dozens of burglary convictions between them before they had met in the early 70s while serving time together in an English prison. Both men had also committed sexual assaults, including rape, crimes to which they were linked to but had not yet been charged with, including the rape of a 16-year-old girl. 
can we just agree that nothing good's going to come out of this friendship? No. <laughs> like, monsters attract monsters here all the way. Yep. While in prison, the heinous duo devised their sinister plan that when they regained their freedom again, the two would conspire together to fulfill their joint fantasy of abducting, raping, and murdering one woman a week. Can I just say here, Court, like seriously, me and you, we're really good friends, right? And we, we like to talk crime and stuff, but I don't know that we've ever sit down and be like, hey, guess what my true fantasy is? And you'd be like, hey, guess what my true fantasy is? I know what, what your they true match? fantasy is. <laughs> you want to talk to a serial killer. That I is do. not my fantasy at all. <laughs> We don't have the same fantasies. I want to talk to a true serial killer at a tequila bar that serves tacos. That's my true fantasy dream right there is to go out and do that. I know it is. You would be in for the tequilas and taco, but not the serial killer. I'm like, can we have that in prison? (laughs) Can we bring some Taco Bell and some Patron to prison, please, with us? I would like a bulletproof plate glass between us. Preferably, we talk through a telephone. <laughs> what if they put one of those really cool masks like Hannibal Lecter on them? Then you wouldn't have to worry, see? No, that would fucking weird me out way more. I'd be like, what the fuck? He's this crazy that he has to wear that. I'd be like, Corey, no, we need to rethink that seriously. <laughs> oh, come he on. He has a pin somewhere stuck in his mouth and he's about to jimmy his way out of here. No. <laughs> Gordy's out. She's done. Nope. Nope. Also, what would be the odds that these two would have the same sick fantasy and be in the same prison at the same time? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's a lot of odds to it. I think more maybe like one kind of had a little bit of a weird fantasy. But you have to understand if they're both in there for sexual assaults, then That's they're going to be grouped together, right? Just like it would be over here in, in the United States. When they go to prison, they have certain sections. So most of your sexual predators are kept within the certain unit so that other offenders won't kill them and harm them yeah because they will trust me so i could see why they were put together in a prison with like minds you know so they don't get beat up or whatever but at the same time i just find it really really kind of i don't know what the word is that i'm looking for but you know the english have always looked down on the irish they've always thought they were above the irish and the scottish same thing english always thought they were above both of them so for me of course they would go to ireland and rape and kill women (laughs) i agree with that yeah In late 1974, Shaw and Evans would be released from the English prison and decided to travel to Ireland, avoiding any new charges being brought against them back home. Arriving in Ireland, the two set out at once, committing a number of house burglaries, first in County Wicklow, Cork, and then in the Clonnell areas to obtain money for funds to fulfill their fucked up fantasy. Yeah, I mean, two peas in a pod all the way here with these fantasies. I just can't imagine sitting down with somebody and be like, hey, my deepest darker. You're about the closest person I've ever found to, to fulfill my fantasy with. Like I said, you'd be in for the tequila and the tacos, but you wouldn't be in for the serial killer. There would have to be some serious protocol before we had that happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> some boundaries set in place. But I just, how does this conversation come up between the two of them? You know, you're sitting around your prison cell one night, you look over the guy and be like, hey, what's your fantasy? Well, hey, what's yours? I just would love to have been a fly on the wall when this conversation started. Nope. Count me out. Shaw and Evans would be arrested several times for burglaries while adventuring through Ireland and appeared at circuit court on February 5th, 1975 for 16 counts of burglary charges. Good grief, man. No shit. Like, that's that's a a lot. lot. (laughs) Before they got caught. Like, I mean, I feel like the Irish police, you know, they're, you know, they're kind of stepping off there a little bit. They need to be, you know, paying attention. That's crazy. They were convicted and sentenced separately, each getting two years, and were later transferred from Cork to Mountjoy Prison. However, neither are going to serve their full sentence. I'm telling you, if you commit a crime in Ireland, this, this is place the- to go. No shit. I mean, you only get 30 years is life. <laughs> 
their lack of severity for punishment of their criminals is fucking bewildering. Well, it's probably why it leads to the crimes that happen in Ireland that happen because they don't have that severe of a punishment. There is to be said a lot of information out there and a lot of data out there that support the stiffer the punishment, the reduced level of recidivism, which recidivism, as I will educate our listeners, is the rate of which an offender will reoffend. Recidivism rate. What I'll say is, is that with Ireland, because they have such lenient sentencings on punishment, that's probably why, you know, there's these sinister, horrific crimes happen in Ireland. Agreed. And if you don't believe that, look at South Korea. Oh, yeah. Same thing. They have very little crime, no public yeah. littering. I mean, look at you get killed for that shit. Yeah, they'll kill so, you. So I mean, that's and I mean, no trial, really, no, 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 like, hey, I think this is nope. Just straight up, you did this. You're going straight this way. Yep. While serving time together in Mountjoy Prison, Shaw and Evans had befriended a fellow inmate named Clift Otteram, who would end up being released from prison before them. Before Clift was released, he invited Shaw and Evans to his home in Feathered County, Tipperary. I bet he's going to regret this invite. <laughs> I bet he regrets it every day. In August 1976, while still in prison, Shaw and Evans were summoned to appear at Dublin's Bridwell, which is Dublin's police headquarters for questioning. The British bobbies or police were wanting to extradite the two for charges of the sexual assault and rape cases they had been linked to back in England and now were being charged with. Shaw and Evans were released on a bond of 40 euros, which is equivalent to about 300 euros today, and given one month to prepare a case for why they should not be extradited. This also will get them off of an early sentence for the burglary charges. What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, this gets them off for burglary and they get a whole month to prepare for why they should not be extradited to England because of sexual assault and rape charges. How does that happen? Well, like I said, the sentencing guidelines over there are so much lenient than they are here in the United States. But that's overall with all their crimes. You know, like we talked about earlier about sexual assault of children over there in Europe. We're only one of few countries that identify as that being a crime, sexually assaulting a child. Rape, even. We're very much more aggressive and harder on that type of crime than they are in Europe. Fucking blows my mind. I know. Like, I feel like that shit wouldn't be happening in America. It wouldn't. We, because we have be extradited. Crime, crime like, you would not be... Yeah, you'd We're not going to let you walk the fucking streets and plead why you feel like you should stay here. In some cases, you can. What I'll tell you is, is that... If you're our, beyond sexual assault and rape charges, yeah. I mean... Our extradition laws go from state to state. So what happens is, is that the only thing that really you have the right for extradition is it's a hearing where the state has to prove that the person standing in this courtroom is the same person... That that's wanted in another state. That's all they have. You're not admitting to guilt of that crime. You're just, are you this person that they're wanting or aren't you this person that they're wanting? That's the extradition point of view from our laws. And I'm pretty sure that's how it is all over the place. It's just a matter of proving the person in this courtroom in Texas is the same person that's wanted in Oklahoma for this crime. That's what they have to prove. That's not hard. Usually through fingerprints, usually through identifiers such as height, weight, skin color, hair color, eye color, birthdays. There's all kinds of different identifiers they can use. Fingerprints are usually their number one way of saying, yep, this is him, this is not him, or this is her, this is not her. And then once the court finds that it's the person, then extradition's over. You're going. See ya. Now, if they don't find that it's the same person, there's not enough identifiers to completely identify the person, then they can give them bonds and let them out. Even on heinous crimes, they can let them out because there's just not enough identifiers to prove that it's that person. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. After Sean Evans were released, the pair would go to Cliff's home, the inmate who had invited them to his house and feathered. Cliff had access to a car, a gray Austin A40, and the deadly duo would ask Cliff if they could borrow it for a few days. Cliff agreed to get the car for them. 
With a car to use, Shaw and Evans drove north to County Wicklow, ready to execute their sinister deadly plan to feed their need of abducting, raping, and murdering. The pair would first stop en route to Wicklow Houston Station to collect Evans' suitcase from a locker where he had been storing it. Shaw and Evans knew the Wicklow area well from the previous burglaries they had served time for. <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? 23-year-old Elizabeth Plunkett lived at Pembroke Cottages in Ringson, Dublin. She was one of eight siblings having three sisters and four brothers. Elizabeth worked for Del LaRue Printing Firm as a currency clerk. She liked to swim, hike, practice judo, and loved camping in the great outdoors. By all accounts, Elizabeth was a confident young woman and had a boyfriend of five months, Damian Bush, a mechanic who she had met through his sister, who was a close work colleague of Elizabeth's. On Saturday, August 28, 1976, Elizabeth and Damien had made plans to go to Staten's Caravan Park in British Bay for the weekend with five other friends taking two cars. Once in the British, the group of friends went for drinks in McDaniel's Pub. Elizabeth was dressed in white slacks, a navy jumper, or sweater, with the words St. Topaz written across it in wedge sandals. She was also wearing a Seiko watch that she had received for her 21st birthday. Over the course of the evening, a small argument between her boyfriend Damien and another friend Joe McCoy about the sale of a car would happen. Just Dur- say this is totally how scary movie starts out. <laughs> no shit. That's why I'm like, is this a plot for a scary movie? I, as I was reading through this stuff, I was like, this seems like a plot for a scary movie right here. <laughs> Agreed. It screamed 300. <laughs> it so did. After Elizabeth tried to intervene in the argument about the car and it did not end between the two men, Elizabeth got up and left the bar by herself. Now, why the hell would her boyfriend and her friends let her leave by herself? I mean, that is some shitty friend, Corey. If we are at a bar and you decided to leave because whatever happened and we're with a group of girlfriends and you decide to leave, there is no way I am letting you leave that bar by yourself. Well, yeah, because probably number one, it's early and you're ready to go home too, like me. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Because we are not, what do they call us? We are not night hawks. Night owls. We can't stay up past nine. 9 p.m. is our cutoff. We got to go past then. We're in trouble. Agreed. <laughs> Me then, and your mom always can be, it's like 7.30 and I'm like, you going to call it? Hurry up, call it. <laughs> I mean, there's no way I'm letting you go home either that way. I mean, I'm going to be like, okay, if you're leaving, I'm leaving. Let's go. Like, exactly. I'm done. Because the party's over at that point when people are starting to leave because they're uncomfortable. Anyway. Yeah. It's Agreed. kind of shitty friendship there all the way. I bet they do regret that. I bet so too. During the murder trial, Damien would state to the court, Liz came over and told us we came down for a good weekend and should not be fighting. I just told her to mind her own business and she left. She went out. Damien wept as he told the court that that was the last time he ever saw her alive. Well, you should have fucking gone after her. I'm sorry, but you should have. I know, right? Why are you weeping? That's your fault. You should have gone after her. Freaking boyfriend, douchebag. Sean and Evans just so happened to be driving through Brita Bays on that fateful evening. The evil duo would see Elizabeth leaving the pub alone and decided she would be their first victim, luring her with the offer of a ride. Okay, just stop right here. Now, if I did manage to go and leave the bar without my friends, I'm not getting into a strange vehicle with men. It's not happening. Agreed. And I'm not victim shaming, but seriously, that is not safe to do at all. Do not do that. You have to read your situation. I hope, if anything, with this podcast, we educate our listeners how to read the room, how to read the situation they're in, right? If you're a female by yourself and a car pulls up with two men inside and they're like, hey, you want to ride? No, I'm not putting myself in that situation. I'm going to turn around and walk back in that bar and be like, no. Agreed. And I understand that this is the 70s, but still. Well, the 70s here in the United States weren't the same 70s over there in Ireland. 
That's, that's true what too. people have to understand too. That's that true. it's just a different mindset. Shaw would get out of the car while Evans drove on so that one man offering a ride to Elizabeth would seem less intimidating than two, a ruse that they had already planned. Once Elizabeth accepted the ride from Evans with the promise of taking her all the way back to Dublin, she climbed into the front seat of the car and they began driving away. Evans unexpectedly stopped the car and Shaw got into the back seat. The unexpecting Elizabeth was then violently attacked by the two men hitting her and dragging her into the back seat. During Shaw and Evans' trial, a witness told the court that he saw a girl wearing white slacks, a dark jumper, walking alone on the road not far from McDaniel's pub at about 11.20 p.m. He saw a car that had been driving slowly in the opposite direction stop and pick her up. The witness drove past and then stopped outside Stutton Supermarket, noting to his passenger that the encounter seemed odd. The witness had asked his friend if he should go back, but the friend had talked him out of it. Now, people, if to see something odd, fucking report it. Yeah, people just don't do that, court people would rather stick their heads in the dirt and not worry about being involved in crimes. You know, so often do I see this trying to find witnesses for the different types of people that we represent when I work with the different attorneys and in different crimes. People don't want to come forward and get involved. And they tell me, I, just, I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be involved. They just would rather stick their heads in the sand. So it's really sad. And it's why these things keep happening the way they happen. We got to do better. We do. Damien and Elizabeth's friends all left McDaniel's pub within 15 minutes of her departure. Can I just say this is where I really think this is fucked up. So you didn't even stay and party any longer. Like, you could have went home with her. You could have taken her home or whatever. I mean, you left 15 minutes after she did. Give me a fucking break. The party was over. You should have left with her. Agreed. They searched for her with growing concern into the early hours of the next day, first searching on foot and then by car looking into pubs, parking lots, and the caravan park and other various locations around British Bay. Elizabeth seemed to have vanished without a trace. The car carrying Sean, Evans, and Elizabeth would come to a stop at the entrance of Castle Time Inn Forestry Plantation about a mile down the road. I mean, they didn't even go that fucking far. Yeah, I know. They really searched for her. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> search that hard for her. Bullshit. I would have already found you, Corey. I know. I would have been happened. like, oh, there's a forest. Let's fucking look there. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. 100%. I'm sorry. This makes me so mad. In a statement later given to police, Evan said, the three of us got out of the car and she got frightened. She did not want to go and we tried to persuade her. We pulled her into the trees and she was saying, let go of me. Shaw and Evans then started a series of beatings to Elizabeth's body. Evan stating, we took off her slacks and panties and John had intercourse with her. She was struggling all the time. Fucking sick fucks. Oh, yeah. Sean then left to move the car and parked it in the parking lot of Jack White's pub and then walked back to the forestry plantation. While Shaw was gone relocating the car, Elizabeth asked Evans what they were going to do with her, and Evans told Elizabeth that they were going to let her go. In Evans' police statement, he said, I then had intercourse with her, and again about half an hour later, she wasn't willing and asked me not to do it. The two men continued taking turns raping Elizabeth throughout the night. When they had their fill of raping her, the two would lay down on either side of Elizabeth so she could not escape. Sunday morning, the day after Elizabeth's abduction, Damien drove back to Dublin to look for his girlfriend, and Evans went back to their car outside of Jack White's pub. Now Evans cannot start his car, so he fell asleep. What the fuck? I <laughs> got his fill, I guess. A witness saw him asleep in the car around 1.45 p.m. Now, sometime after this, the witness helped Evans jumpstart his car. When the car started, Evans drove back to the forestry. 
Evans later told authorities, when I got to the lane, Shaw was there and I could see something had happened straight away. He was white. I asked him what was wrong. He told me that the girl was dead. I didn't believe him, so I walked down the lane and into the trees. I'd seen the girl lying there with her clothes on. I asked Shaw what happened. He told me he had been asleep and she tried to get away and he ran after her and grabbed her. He said she was screaming. Shaw then strangled Elizabeth with the sleeve of one of Evans' nylon shirts that he had in his suitcase that was treed from the locker at Houston Station. The two men left Elizabeth's body in the woods along with Evans' suitcase and drove away towards Britta's Bay again. That is stupid. Big mistake right here. Why would you leave the body there? Yeah. Somebody could have Circle this that. in red and then you, you leave your clothes and your suitcase there. Like, duh. You fucking idiots. They didn't plan well. Nope. Evans later stated, we decided at this stage to throw her into the sea. After making the decision of how to dispose of Elizabeth's body, Shaw and Evans broke into more caravan parks, stealing a portable television, cash, a tent, and two sleeping bags. They then hid out for the rest of the day until nightfall. I mean, why would you kill somebody and then do burglaries? I mean, this is... <laughs> well, they're now trying to cover up their mistakes, right? They've murdered this girl. They've got a dead body. They don't know what the hell to do with it. Now they got to get rid of this body. So they're trying to steal stuff and get a plan together to get rid of the body. For time that they had in prison to make this plan, you would have thought they would have thought this shit That's way better That's why I'm not real out. sure that it was so much a murderous as it was rape, kidnap, rape, kidnap, rape kind of thing. And the murder just, just happened. happened with it. I could agree with that. Sometime after midnight on August 29th, Shaw and Evans returned to where they had left Elizabeth's body. The two had noticed some rowing boats anchored at the river on Breda's Bay while out thieving earlier in the day. The sinister two broke the padlock on a 12-foot dinghy called the Skipper and then broke into a shed and stole oars and a lawnmower. They also pulled down a clothesline made of rope, taking it with them. In Evans' confession, he stated, We took the girl's clothes off of her. We tied the lawnmower around her body with rope. Then they put Elizabeth's body in the boat, rowed out to sea, and threw her and the lawnmower overboard. Shaw and Evans would then abandon the boat two miles along the shoreline from where they had stolen it and drove back to the woods. Back at the forestry, the two collected Evans' suitcase and the clothes Elizabeth had been wearing. Her sandals had already been abandoned in the woods along with her underwear and throwing her watch into some nearby bushes. You fucking amateurs. That's a lot of evidence to leave behind. Oh, yeah. Tons of evidence. Good Lord. Not that well planned out. Not well planned out at all. And like I said, I don't know that they necessarily, they didn't set out to kill her at least. It happened and then they were just trying to cover their tracks. And obviously they're amateurs and just no thought process at all on this is what probably let them get caught. Agreed. The following morning at McDaniel's Pub, they would light a bonfire in the parking lot and burned her slacks and top. A police officer noticed this activity and asked for their names. The men gave their names as John and Joffrey Murphy, saying that they were on holidays. What the fuck? Yeah. Seriously, why would you go to a parking lot and burn this shit? Cops are going to notice that shit, you I know. idiots. There's just what? no rhyme or reason to what they're doing now. They're just doing things as the wind blows at this point. In the days after Elizabeth Plunkett was reported missing, her friends and family continued to search the surrounding Britta Bay's area for her, along with many other volunteers. Joe McCoy, the friend that had been arguing with Elizabeth's boyfriend Damien at the pub the night Elizabeth was abducted, was the one who found her bra thrown into the bushes at Castle Time Inn on Saturday, September 4th. Elizabeth Watch was also found dangling from a tree branch along with one sandal, and not long after, another sandal was found near a sandpit. Her family identified these items as belonging to Elizabeth. What? See? They just, yeah, they're they're like Jack and Jill leaving the breadcrumbs. I mean, they only went a mile from where she disappeared. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 
Like I said, that just kills me with her friends that say, oh, well, we really, you know, we went back and looked for her. Uh, I feel like if you looked for her, you would have found her. You got scared of them woods. Uh-huh. When the overgrown vegetation at Castle Time Inn was cut back, a homemade cardboard label with G. Murphy written on it was discovered, which had fallen off of Evan's suitcase. Oh my god, this is, this is like worse than Hansel and Gretel, dude. They're just like totally leaving their little breadcrumbs everywhere. <laughs> they just might as well put a big blinking arrow over their head pointing to them. Absolutely. The police officer who had recently seen two men burning clothes remembered the names they had given him, and an alert was circulated to police stations across Ireland with their descriptions and the fact that they both had British accents. So stupid. Oh my god, these guys are idiots. Fucking idiot they are. <laughs> So terrible. So like, terrible. <laughs> worst rapists and killers I've ever met. Yep. On September 2nd, Shaw and Evans drove back to Cliff's house in Feathered County, Tipperary, and returned his car. I'm sure he's been like, you assholes after you learned all this. Like, <laughs> I've already left Joe once. I don't need to go back. Thanks. My thing is, is like, why would you return the car now? It's not like you're exactly, you know, the most upstanding law-abiding citizen here. They needed somewhere to go. I guess. The murderous pair then continued to carry out a number of home burglaries and were specifically after money in order to have the means to carry out their next murder. They stole a license plate from an abandoned Ford Corsa on Cork's Bandon Road and then returned to Cliff's house. <laughs> so cracks me up. I mean, they're terrible. <laughs> they're just like just doing things to do things at this point. There's really no plan here. On Wednesday, September 8th, the two applied for and were granted provisional driving license at Clunnell Taxation Offices, giving the names Ray Hall for Evans and David Ball for Shaw and used Cliff's home address. I'd be fucking pissed if I was Cliff. Like, <laughs> I was Cliff, I'd be like, you sons of bitches. But that's just, you know, we're talking about the 70s back now. Word and information just did not travel fast. And that was a big problem back then. It's why these guys were able to do what they were able to do and move around the way they were able to move around. Agreed. Two days later, on Friday, September 10th, Cliff drove Shaw and Evans to Limerick the day the two were supposed to appear at Bridwell in Dublin, explaining why they should not be extradited back to England. <laughs> I mean, their give-a-fucks are broken. Oh, yeah. They're so far gone with what they care about. And because they're not being held accountable for anything, so they just keep on going because they keep getting away with it. Agreed. Shaw and Evans made their way to Galway, deciding they needed a home base. Side note, I've been there, and it's quite lovely. Galway. At a caravan site in Barna on September 14th, they bought a caravan for 330 euros using the fake names on their driver's license. The man who sold the caravan at the site later stated that on arrival, the men had no car, but one appeared a couple of days later. Sean would later tell the police that Evans pinched the green Cortina car with a broken taillight in Clifton, been there too, and had replaced its plates with those they had stolen in Cork, and they bought black paint and brushes, and the pair did a crude painting job of the stolen car. <laughs> this is like stuff out of the movies. This is so terrible. <laughs> Can you imagine the brush strokes on that damn car? I wonder if they use wall paint. <laughs> I don't even know. Just terrible. It's like if it rains, you're fucked all the way. The paint's just going to run. Yep. They would also steal a roof rack for their stolen vehicle. With their own car, money, and a home base, Shaw and Evans were ready to seek out their next victim. 23-year-old Mary Duffy was one of seven siblings. Both these girls have a lot of siblings. Like, I know, but Ireland's known for the big families over oh, there. Yeah, yeah. That's Catholics, big families. 
In September 1976, she was living at home on her family's farm in Deer Park, Belcara, about five miles from the town of Castlebar. Mary had a strong work ethic and at the time of her death held two jobs working as a shop assistant for four days a week during the day and working four evenings a week as a cook at the coffee shop on Elson Street. Mary's colleagues at the coffee shop would tell the police that Mary never walked home at night. She always either got a lift from her brother or a customer in the restaurant, telling officers now and then she stayed over in Castle Bar with friends. She did not have a boyfriend, but she liked going out dancing on the weekends. On the evening of Wednesday, September 22, 1976, Mary finished her shift at the coffee shop around 11 p.m. Her colleagues described her as having been in a happy mood that evening. She was wearing a red polo neck shirt, jeans, a red duffel coat, boots, and was carrying a brown plastic handbag containing a red purse with white rosary beads and a plastic cosmetic bag. Mary also wore two gold rings and one was a signet ring with her initials MD and the other contained her birthstone. Later, Mary's younger sister, with whom she shared a bedroom with, would identify in court the cosmetic bags and contents belonging to her sister Mary. Oh, that's God. That's sad. You know, that's so hard to have to go in and identify all that in court and have to testify to her sister's stuff. Oh, I heart-wrenching. Ugh. I, I don't know if I could do that, man. You would. You'd find the strength, but it would be difficult. Ugh. At the end of Mary's shift that night, she borrowed some change from a colleague to call her brother Michael to ask for a ride, placing the call at about 11.10 p.m. from a public phone. Now, Michael had been with a customer when Elizabeth called the mechanic shop that he worked at and left a message with his employer to tell him that she would start walking home ahead of him to the junction of Briefree Road where she would wait. Just like with Elizabeth, Shaw and Evans watched while Mary made her phone call, then leave and start walking alone. The murderous Brits would again put their sinister plan into action in the area of the town called Celine. Sean once more exited the car and Evans parked it further up the street along where Mary was walking. The area had several houses on either side of the street and with an earshot. Shaw followed Mary silently and then when she came alongside the parked car, he pounced on her. Mary had trouble with her teeth over the years and wore a dental plate to replace a missing tooth. Shaw would punch Mary so hard in the face that her dental plate dislodged and came out of her mouth and fell onto the road. This plate would later be identified by Mary's dentist who had taken the cast as being hers. Another fucking mistake. Huge mistake. Good Lord. I mean, these guys are just... They could have easily picked that up. Yeah, they're just on a rampage at this point. They're not even thinking or considering. There's no plan, right, or reason to this. Nope. As Shaw forced Mary into the backseat of the car, she began screaming loudly, alerting several witnesses in the nearby houses who would later tell police that they had heard around 11 p.m. that night. This is terrible. If I'm in my house and I start hearing a girl scream, I'm up, I'm out the house, I'm looking what the hell's going on. I don't even know what these people are thinking. Exactly, Corey. A nearby resident stated that she heard screams that sounded short and hysterical and also reported hearing a man's voice calling, come on. Another neighbor reported hearing a woman's voice screaming, stating it was like she was hurt or someone had hit her. One neighbor peering out from their window, alarmed by what they were hearing, reported seeing a Cortina car with a roof rack and a broken tail light revving loudly, reversing and then driving at a speed towards Galway Road. So terrible. And nobody yet has called the police. Yeah, nobody's called the police yet. Nobody's even worried. They're just like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess women scream all the time in Ireland. I don't know. That's crazy. I don't understand this. Shaw in the backseat with Mary tied her hands together and then hit her repeatedly while he raped her. 
In Joff's statement to the police, he said, Somewhere along the road, I started to drive, and Joff got in the back seat of the car with her. She didn't scream, but said, Don't do me any harm. They would drive through the night, continually swapping to drive to take turns in the back seat of the car, raping Mary until they reached West Connemara, where they previously scoped out an isolated site to take their next victim. Coming to a direct stop at the Delerick Railroad Station building near Bali Hitch, Shaw and Evans dragged Mary out of the car, stripped her naked, and took her into the woods where they both repeatedly raped her. My lord, talk about some fucking stamina on these guys. Jesus. No shit. You and my husband are going to have a long talk when I get home. I mean, amazing stamina. At some point in the night, the two men gave Mary her coat back only to tie her to a tree, pitching their stolen tent beside her. Before dawn, Evans got up and drove back to their caravan site, and Barna taking one of many of the concrete blocks from their caravan park, which were used to secure the caravans, placing it in the trunk of the car and accidentally smearing the concrete block with black paint from the botched paint job. Oh my god, this is so terrible. Evans also took a rope and Valium tablets from their caravan. According to statements given to police, while Evans was away, Shaw untied Mary from the tree and continued to rape her. While Evans returned that evening to the makeshift campsite, both Shaw and an unclothed Mary were in the tent where Mary had a bleeding gash over her left temple, two black eyes, a few of her teeth were missing, and displaying new wounds and scratches to her body. After Evans returned, Shaw would then take the car and go drinking in Roundstone with Evans staying behind to continue to rape Mary. What the fuck? The stamina on these guys. Just, oh my God. After Shaw returned, he and Evans discussed what to do with her abducted victim. I really wonder if there wasn't more of a sickness to these men on a whole other level that they were able to obtain and continue with the raping of her. Now, of course, they don't say if they were raping with their dicks or their fingers or, or objects. We don't know. But just, wow. It's amazing. Yeah. Around midnight, Evans gave Mary five Valium tablets, causing her to become very drowsy and told her they were going to take her home. Evans would leave the tent to go and sit in their car while Shaw remained in the tent with Mary. Shaw would then place a red tartan cushion that had been in their car over Mary's face and began to suffocate her and then strangled her with his hands. In Shaw's police statement, he said, I put my hands around her neck and I killed her. Look, Evans is a terrible fucking human being, but Shaw so far, he's the one that has murdered both of these women. Yeah, he's definitely a little bit more step up here than Evans for sure. Agreed. From the car, Evans watched the horrific act in the tent until it ended, then walked back to the tent where Mary's unmoving body was lying. In Evans' statement, he claimed that Shaw had said, We will have to do the same as we did in Wicklow, and I knew what that was. That meant concealing the body in the water. Shaw and Evans carried Mary's body to their car and drove to a boathouse on the shore of Lockenag, farther east. Evans smashed one of the boathouse windows and stole a sledgehammer, a grappling hook, more rope, along with a pair of oars. I wonder where they were going. <laughs> Back out to sea. Yep. The two men took Mary's coat off, which was the only item of clothing she was still wearing, and her two rings. Then tied the sledgehammer around Mary's waist and took the concrete block from the car trunk, tying it around her legs with rope and wrapping the rope around and around several times. Also tying the grappling hook onto her body to use as another anchor. Sean Evans then put her body into the boat and rowed far out into Lockenag Lake, which is a deep opaque lake with a bog at its underside. Shaw threw Mary's lifeless body overboard while Evans kept the boat balanced. Shaw and Evans returned the oars to the boathouse and the boat to the original location and threw Mary's two gold rings into the undergrowth, where they were later found by police using metal detectors. Why even take the rings off if you aren't going to keep them? 
I know. Agree. That makes no sense to me, right? Usually serial killers, they'll keep mementos of their victims. We all know that. But what gets me is you weren't going to keep them. So why even take them off? They disposed of the sleeping bags and other clothes, throwing them over the Weir Bridge near Clifton. Like Corey said, once again, terrible at disposing evidence. I know. Just no rhyme or reason to any of this. So fucking sinister. It is. Among Mary's injuries, pathologist John Harpson would find extensive bruising to her upper left arm and shoulder consistent with being forcibly held down and later told the court that Mary's pubic hair and the pubic hair of both men along with both men's semen fluid was found on the backseat of the car. The pathologist also told the court there was possibility of intercourse after death. And just when you thought it couldn't get any more sinister. Good Lord. Ugh, I'm telling you, like, there's no explaining people who rape people, nope. but it's beyond even my comprehension of even any kind of understanding of how you can rape somebody that's dead. That is so fucking sinister for me. Like, and I've seen some sick shit in my life, Court, and I've heard sick shit in my life, but raping somebody that's already dead? Oh, God, it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. That just is beyond any kind of, not that I could even understand raping somebody else, you know, that kind of thing, but I don't want to take a dead, dead body. I know, raping a dead body body? No, no, no. Once Mary Duffy had disappeared and been reported missing like Elizabeth Plunkett, police were certain the two cases were linked. Police had already been looking for two men traveling together and both with British accents. Fucking idiots because you're <laughs> fucking robberies. They're terrible. Yep. There were regular media reports about the missing women and pleas to the public remain for information about these two men. As luck would have it, Sean Evans' poorly painted black car had been noticed the evening before Mary was abducted on September 22nd. The two had stopped to buy three euros of gas at an isolated pump at Connemara. The pump operator, Joseph Keane, noted the clearly overpainted car and the English accents of the two gentlemen. He took it upon himself to write down the license plate. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Finally, somebody, and somebody yes. is paying attention. Yes. Good job, sir. Good job. The following day, he called the police and gave them the license plate number. The police then began a nationwide manhunt for the sinister two Brits and their car. Sean and Evans' car was spotted by a police officer parked outside the Ocean Wave Hotel in Salt Hill on Sunday night, September 26. The officer sent his colleague for backup from the nearest police station and waited. Shaw and Evans were drinking in the Ocean Wave bar watching for potential victims. When Shaw and Evans came out to their car, they were arrested and taken into custody. After being arrested, Sean and Evans admitted to their sick and twisted spree of rape, murder, and led police to the sites in Wicklow and Galway where they committed their crimes. This is just so crazy. I'm still just like blown away. They didn't even try to fight. No. Like, they just were like, yeah, we did it. I know. You would have thought been take like, you. nope. Yeah, let me take you where we did it. Find the body. Prove it, bitch. <laughs> Something. And that just goes to show there's no more remorse there either. No, because really right now they have a circumstantial evidence. So you're beyond sociopath here. You're just full in psychopath here. Agreed. En route to Dublin's Mountjoy prison after the two were charged for the murder, Sean leaned in and confessed to Detective Jerry O'Carroll how the pair planned on doing one a week. This is crazy. Like, can you imagine being the detective driving this crazy bastard to prison and him leaning in and going like, guess what? I had this sacred plan. We were going to go and do this once a week, but we got tired. <laughs> Nope, in Corey's own words, that one can't be released. Nope. There's just some men that don't deserve to walk this earth, period. Nope. On September 28th, a local man was out walking on Dun McCormick Beach in County Wexford where he saw a body lying face down on the grassy patch near the shoreline. 
The body would be identified as Elizabeth Plunkett. Elizabeth was buried at Dean's Grange Cemetery in Dublin on October 2, 1976. A team of some 35 divers ranging from police, naval, and army units, including civilian volunteers, spent almost two weeks searching Lockenag Lake for Mary Duffy's body, despite having been shown the approximate location by Shaw and Evans. Her body was eventually located in a crevice by volunteer diver Tommy Mulveen. Mary Duffy was buried in Elmheim Cemetery in her home village of Bella Cara County, Mayo, on October 13, 1976. In the Central Criminal Court on August 9, 1978, John Shaw and Joffrey Evans were both given life sentences. Thank God, because good Lord. (laughs) I mean, we all know that's only 30 years. Think if they hadn't been caught and how many more women they could have raped and murdered. Yeah. What's so interesting is, is that these guys seriously were just sick human beings. Agreed. And when I go back and comparing him to Jack the Ripper and, you know, the individual that committed those crimes, same kind of MO, just that sickness in him that just you can't even identify. It's beyond any common reasoning of a common human being. Agreed. On May 20th, 2012, at the age of 68, Evans died in a vegetative state from sepsis, which is response to an infection in the body, in St. Mary's Hospital in Phoenix Park, Dublin. Don't feel bad. I'm, nope. I'm glad. I mean, I wish he could have went in a more, you know, horrible way, but whatever. We'll go Agreed. with sepsis. He had been transferred from Arbor Hill Prison to the Matter Hospital for a successful heart bypass operation in December of 2008, but had a stroke the following day and never recovered from his coma. Don't feel bad. Nope. That is way more than what he fucking deserved. Hell yeah. June of 2010, Evans was then transferred to St. Mary's Hospital, where he eventually died two years later after being in a coma for nearly four years. No family members came forward to claim his body, and Evans was buried by the Irish Prison Services in an unmarked grave. I would imagine no fucking family came and yeah, claimed him. I wouldn't I would either. Be, yeah, I wouldn't even. I'd be like, nope, I don't know him. Yep. <laughs> I don't want that on my conscience. Nope. John Shaw, now 76 and Ireland's longest serving prisoner, has been in custody for almost 47 years and serves his time in Arbor Hill Prison. His prison job entails recycling computer parts, and according to a prison source, Shaw is a grumpy inmate who doesn't interact with anybody except for when he is working. Well, can you blame him? I mean, he's not getting the sex he was usually so used to. Agreed. He spends the majority of his time in his cell with his pet Budgie, or what we know as a parakeet called Joffrey, named after his leg killer friend. Okay, can I just say right now, first of all, what the fuck? Why do they get pets? I agree. That's what I was wondering, too. <laughs> like, I don't feel like that happens in American no, prisons. I feel like that's fucked up. Number two, okay, what the fuck you named him after your best friend? That's so fucked there's up. Just, there's a level of psychosis this man is in, for sure. <laughs> Greed. Over the years, Shaw's case has been subject of a number of reviews, first by the Sentence Review Group and subsequently the Parole Board, and has repeatedly unsuccessfully applied for full release through the parole process. Can I just say that this makes me very excited because that means he's still alive and we can go interview him in court. Yes, you can. Me, me and you. No, not, not me. Me and you. We can go over there. We can, I'll we go can. with you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if what if he gets released? So I mean, he's going to be old. We can bring him here. Quit trying to bring people here. <laughs> we will go to them when they're in prison. <laughs> no, come on. If they release him. I mean, I'm sure he wants to get out of Ireland. I'm sure he's tired of being there. Corey, no. I'm no, telling you, no. Saying it might be fun. No. We can take him some tacos. He probably has never tasted tacos. I was like, I'm pretty sure he's never tasted tacos before. <laughs> 
In April of 2016, the Prison Review Committee noted how Shaw was very frustrated that he has never gotten a day out of prison in his 38 years in custody, remarking that Shaw has no family in Ireland and has only received one family visit over the course of his sentence. Oh, poor baby. Like, what the? Who cares? I know, right? The parole board recommended that he remain in Arbor Hill Prison to allow speedy access to medical treatment and be granted two days escorted outings per year. What? Really? You get to go out? I mean, that's fucked up, man. I mean, this isn't like a a white collar criminal. Like, no. This is somebody who rapes and murders women for the fun of it. Fuck that. I don't want him out on the street. With I don't give a shit if he's escorted or not by police. That's no. Maybe on one of the outings, we can meet him for lunch. Talk it over at a pub. No? Okay. I'm, I'm looking by the fear look in your face. That's a no, Court. That's a no. Come on, listeners. Who wants to be behind me here? Who wants to see me in court go over to Ireland and interview this guy? I will lunch interview him outing. while he is in jail. Thank you. A dynamic risk assessment of Shaw was done in June of 2016 and found him to be at a high level risk of reoffending. Well, you fucking think? Good no Lord. Shit. This is not only the guy that raped him, but he's also the murderer of this group. Agreed. Right. He's the one that is like the sinisterness all the way. So why the fuck would he ever get out? Agreed. Areas of particular concern to the assessors were poor problem-solving skills. Really? I can't imagine. Okay, I killed her. Now what do we do with her? (laughs) Give me a fucking break. (laughs) Negative emotionality. Deviant sexual preference. Oh, you think? (laughs) Yeah. I like him dead before I really can be able to have my way with him. Non-cooperation with supervision. Significant social influences. Hostility towards women. Well, God dang. (laughs) Well, uh, thank God they finally identified that problem. Good Lord. General social rejection and lack of concern for others. (laughs) I think like this wasn't hard to detect. I, I feel like it shouldn't take him this long to do this assessment on him. Agreed. A letter dated November 29, 2016 was sent from the Minister of Justice, Patrick McCarthy, refusing the parole board's recommendation of two days of escorted outings for Shaw, writing, it was not satisfactory on the decision to accept the recommendation for temporary release of Shaw. <laughs> Good job for not letting him out and about. Great job, McCarthy. Very impressed with your reasoning skills there. (laughs) Good job in doing your job. I know, right? Between 2016 and 2019, Shaw's parole hearings concluded that he was unsuitable for full release and still poses a danger to women. Oh my gosh. Okay, Court. I would love to have just like that sit down time with him be like, you can looky, but you can't touchy. Nope. He's a danger to us. I'm not doing this. He's not. Come on, Court. He's not getting us. Give me a break. I mean, I mean, unless his parakeet's there with him, he ain't doing it. Obviously, he has to have some backup somewhere. Come on. You know you want to. It'd be fun. Mm, it's Just a hard pass for me, but thank you. We'll, we'll take it from here, guys. We got this. You can leave him alone with us. Oh, no, we will not, Corey. <laughs> that is... No, that oh, come on, Corey. He doesn't have time to, you know, even consider. No, no, Corey, no. no. All right, fine. No, no. It could be fun. No. It could be a lot of fun. No, we differ on our fun. <laughs> In January 2020, Shaw took his case to the Court of Appeal. Before the hearing, the then Minister of Justice, Charlie Flanagan, accepted that Shaw should be permitted two days of temporary release a year under prison escort. However, due to the pandemic and Shaw still viewed as a threat to women, his two days of temporary release were halted. Well, just make sure it's not women guards. I mean, it'll be all right. I feel like they use the pandemic as a crutch not to let him out. <laughs> Sorry, it's too dangerous out there for you. However, after talking of new legal challenges by Shaw's defense counsel in May of 2020, Ireland's longest-serving inmate walked out of the prison for his police escorted two days of release. 
Shaw spent the Sunday morning flanked by plainclothes officers strolling around the city of Dublin. What? (laughs) Oh, Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so exciting. A source told the Irish Sunday Mirror he has no family or friends in Ireland, so he wanted to go and have a walk around Dublin City Center and stop off for a coffee in a cafe. I'm sure people sitting across from him would have assumed he was just an old man out with his two grown-up grandsons. That's hilarious. The Irish Sunday Mirror source said, Shaw was back in jail that evening and appears to have really enjoyed his taste of freedom. Well, I fucking imagine... This would never happen in America. Can you imagine being part of the Ireland police force and being a woman to be like, hey, you're getting assigned to go take the you know most deadliest women serial killer out there and have coffee with him? We both would have had two different responses. You'd have been like, yes. yes! I'd have been like, here's my resignation, <laughs> motherfuckers. Um, out? <laughs> That's a hard pass. What if you talked to him in a manly voice? Maybe he wouldn't have liked you as much. I could have gone to get some healing, but that would probably made it even higher. <laughs> Okay, Corey, your favorite part of the mistakes. Uh, I think we've mentioned them all the way through this thing. But number one, you know, don't have accomplices when you're going to commit murders. Number two, would you please not do it in such a public manner? Like, good grief. You're begging to get caught. Number three, let's not leave bread trails. I mean, come on. If we're going to murder somebody, let's try to hide the evidence the best we can. Don't take rings off fingers if you're not going to keep them. I mean, you know, Jesus. And, you know, number four and lastly, my biggest thing is these guys never once had any foresight to what they were going to do past a certain point. So if you're going to commit a murder, at least have some foresight to see, hey, what's going to be my next step? Agreed. Well, as always, stay Stay strange and unusual. We'll be back next week with another cocktail and a new tale of sinister minds, reminiscing crimes and mistakes they left behind. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and download us on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite show. Want the recipe to try Corey's Sinister Cocktail from today's episode? Or have any constructive feedback or true crime stories you would like to hear us cover? Or even Sinister Cocktail recipes for us to try? Email us at SinisterCrimesAndCocktails at gmail.com. Visit our website, www.SinisterCrimesAndCocktailsPodcast.com, Facebook page, Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, and our Instagram page, Sinister Crimes and Cocktails. Love what you heard and want to help support our show or donate to our Sinister Cocktail Fund? You can donate to our cash app at money sign Sinister Crimes, all one word, and we will give you a shout out on our next episode and which fund you donate to. Thank you. (laughs) 